Hello, and thank you for inviting me to hang out in your eardrums. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Podcast Trashy Books. This is episode number 416, and my guest today is Olivia Waite. Olivia is the author of The Care and Feeding of Waspish Widows, which is out now, and she's also the new romance columnist for the New York Times. So we take a deep and joyful, nerdy dive into beekeeping, confronting by erasure in romance, and all of the fun ways in which she interacts with romance research. It's a really fun conversation. I want to thank Kate, Shana, Aria, Claudia, and Lee for questions that helped make this episode so interesting. Now, I know you like podcasts because you are listening to this one, but you know about Jeff and Will, right? Sure you do. But if you don't, let me let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Jeff. And I'm Will from the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. We're proud to be part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Our show is for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. We've talked to a wide range of authors, such as Casey McQuiston, Adriana Herrera, Becky Albertalli, and Suzanne Brockman. TJ Klune has appeared a number of times on the show to tell listeners about his epic tales featuring werewolves, wizards, and drag queens. New episodes are available every Monday. You can find us at BigGayFictionPodcast.com and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We hope you'll join us soon. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. I will have links to where you can find the Big Gay Fiction Podcast in the show notes to this episode, along with all of the books we talk about at SmartBitchesTrashyBooks.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Candlewick Press, publisher of The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea, the new YA fantasy novel by Maggie Takuda Hall. Now, you might remember Maggie was a recent guest on the show. And if you didn't know, this book has everything. Gender-fluid pirates, witchcraft, Japanese cultural themes, and a nuanced exploration of colonialism. The pirate Florian, born Flora, has always done whatever it takes to survive, including sailing under false flag on the Dove as a marauder, thief, and worse. Lady Evelyn Hasegawa, a highborn imperial daughter, is on board as well, accompanied by her own casket. But Evelyn's one-way voyage to an arranged marriage in the floating islands is interrupted when the captain and crew show their true colors and enslave their wealthy passengers. Both Florian and Evelyn have lived their lives by the rules and whims of others, but when they fall in love, they decide to take fate into their own hands, no matter the cost. The Mermaid, the Witch, and the Sea by Maggie Takuda Hall is published by Candlewick Press and is available now wherever books are sold. This podcast is also brought to you by Native Deodorant. I believe reading labels is important, especially because I have sensitive skin, and I've been using Native for a few weeks now. It is terrific. Native deodorant is formulated without aluminum, parabens, or talc, and it won't clog sweat glands. It's also vegan and never tested on animals, and it works. I am using the coconut vanilla scent, which I am told is their most popular. Wow, do I like it. And I learned that several of us on the SBTB team really like Native as well. Plus, they also sent me cucumber and mint, which my husband stole. I mean, uses daily. Yeah, that's what I meant. You can try Native risk-free. Free shipping on every order, and Native offers 30-day free returns and exchanges in the U.S. Do what I did and make the switch to Native today by going to nativedo.com slash Sarah, S-A-R-E-H, or use promo code Sarah at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's nativedo.com slash Sarah, or use promo code Sarah at checkout for 20% off your first order. 
Hello again to our Patreon community. Thank you for being so wonderful. If you have supported the show with a pledge of any amount, you are making sure that every episode is accessible to everyone and you're keeping it going each week. If you would like to join our Patreon community, please have a look at patreon.com slash smartpitches. As always, after the interview and conversation, I will end the episode with a really bad joke, and I will have links to everything we talk about in the show notes as well. But for now, let's do this interview. On with my conversation with Olivia Waite. Hello, my name is Olivia Waite, and I'm a romance and sci-fi fantasy author. I also write essays on the history and criticism of the romance genre, and I am the brand spanking new romance columnist for the New York Times Book Review. You are not. I so am. Oh, <gasps> Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I got like the official go ahead to tell people like last week. So I've been kind of slowly leaking it out there. But <gasps> oh, that's excited. wonderful. How did that happen? The day that my last column went live at the Seattle Review of Books, I got an email from Tina Jordan saying, hey, so Jamie Green's actually leaving after her next column goes up. Do you want to take over? Like, do you want to do some reviews for us? And I'm like, oh my God, I've spent this whole week grieving because I was going to miss being a columnist so much. Um, yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. So we did, we did one to test it out, but, you know, unsurprisingly, I loved doing it. And so while we're fact checking that, uh, I've been starting to get pitches from a lot more publishers than I'm used to talking to. Uh, I should say. Yeah. So that, that actually leads to one of the questions that, um, one of my uh, one of my writers, Aria, had about being a, a critic and columnist while also being an author. How do you how do you handle that? Is well, it, it is it possible for you to shut off your brain while you're reading as a critic versus as an author versus as a reader? No, but it never it never has been. Yeah, um, I mean, I've been a critic even longer than I've been a writer, and I'd been mm-hmm. hoping to be a critic even before I thought about writing fiction. Like initially when I started out, you know, I loved books. I started working in bookstores. I thought about being an editor. I thought about being, you know, a copy editor. I thought about doing book reviews professionally because I did actually have a a book review column in my college newspaper, which was extremely seat of the pants because I was also the copy editor. So I would just write up what books I'd been reading during the all nighter we pulled getting the issue together. (laughs) how many words will fit in this column how many books do i need to fill this space exactly that kind of i've been there i was the editor of my college paper (laughs) exactly it was really fun and i really loved it and then when i went to grad school it was comparative literature and so i've always been kind of taking books apart and seeing how they worked and how the machinery flows both within genres and in literary fiction poetry um ancient literature all that good stuff. So I don't really have an off mode, I think. I get it. I have the same problem. So can you give me a preview of some of your future columns? Oh, uh, well, let me tell you. The book already came out, so I'm very happy to talk about this one. But one book that's going to be in the first one is Vanessa Riley's The Duke, A Lady, and a Baby. It's A Duke, The Lady, and a Baby. It's so fun. It's so Vanessa Riley. Uh, She's got this incredible period voice. Like I read a lot of historicals and I love historicals, but there's definitely like a modern historical romance voice. And then there's something that he was a bit closer to primary sources from the time period voice. And I think Vanessa Riley does that better than just about anybody else out there. Like you just, you feel transported in a very particular way. 
Oh my gosh, this one's so good. And they've given it this beautiful cover and it's so gorgeous, but the fonts are all very rom-com. And it it's very it's not super angsty. It's it's very like kind of light angst, like a little murdery, you know, a little melodrama. It's really kind of gothic. And I'm like, oh no, people are gonna see the baby and they see the little ribbon and they're going to like they're going to think this is like some frothy historical romance, like an Evie Dunmore type situation. And I'm like, no, no, there, there's like a sinister chandelier and somebody has been drugged at some point in the course of the plot. And the angsty Duke lost a leg in the war and is not like good at dealing with it yet. And like, it's so gothic. Whoa, it's- that's not what the cover communicates at all. No, it's. Wonderful. Oh, dear. No, I I loved it. I mean, any discussion of prosthetics and historicals is just always welcome. And so, like, to have that kind of detail in here is just so good. And her her heroine, Patience, is uh, a black Caribbean, I want to say rum, but she's an heiress, and she has family back across the ocean, but she doesn't have anybody on her side in England. And now that her husband's dead, uh, she's in... A very tight spot concerning his relatives and custody of her son. It's so tense and beautiful and wonderful. And it's definitely something I was excited to talk about. Also sounds like one of those books, and there have been a few of them lately, where my writers and I often feel like we have a responsibility to say, hey, heads up, this cover does not match the insides. And if you pick this up expecting this, you're going to get something very different. Yes. Yeah, and it can be so hard, you know, because reader expectations of covers are so complicated. And the cover is doing a job that has often nothing to do with the book, but it's sometimes better if the cover <laughs> represents the book a little more accurately. Yes. Like, for instance, uh, my my upcoming that comes out in one week is The Care and Feeding of Waspish Widows. And my heroines are both about 45. And they're like, uh, Olivia, we're sorry. We're not going to put 45-year-old women on the cover. And I'm like... Oh, okay. I know. With stock photos and like all that stuff. And I'm like, you know, this, I I did not feel like having that fight like on the day that they mentioned that. And I'm like, yeah, and marketing. I know. I know. I mean, it's part of what was so great about Mrs. Martin's is there's a woman with silver hair right there on the cover in a historical gown. I know. So uh, congrats on your waspish widows. Tell me all about these waspish widows. Well, uh, there's really only one widow. Actually, no, that's not true. There's a bunch of them, but one widow is the, the hair. Only one of the heroines is a widow. Her name is Agatha. You met her in the Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics. She's a printer and an engraver. And I'm very sorry about her lovely husband Thomas. I had to kill him off. I did not realize I was going to do that. He actually like I knew he was going to die, but then I had to expand his scene in the Lady's Guide, and I'm like, I'm so sorry, Thomas. I love you. You deserve better, but you've got to go. <laughs> actually helped me I was able to write him something really sweet and encouraging because I'm like I know I'm gonna be mean to him later I'm so sorry she's struggling under these new taxes and these new burdens on um, printers and publishers and so in order to like kind of bump the profit margins she's pulling stuff from the warehouse she's pulling old plates of things and reissuing because those are things that are cheap to produce and guaranteed sellers right they know which ones are popular You can always bring back an old edition of some poetry from like 10 years back kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Her print shop is in London, as we've seen, but she has uh, the stereotype plates and a bigger press for the magazine 
out in a small town called Melliton, about an hour outside London. And she goes to the warehouse and, oh my God, bees have gotten in and they've started building honeycomb on some of these printing plates. And she's like, this seems dangerous. I have no idea what to do about it. She goes to her mother-in-law, her late husband's mother, who is one of the many widows here, um, and says, hey, you know about bees. What should I be doing? And she says, you need to go talk to Penelope Flood. Penelope Flood is a local beekeeper. She's not a widow. She's still married. Um, Her husband is a whaler. He's away at sea on the same ship as her brother. Dun, dun, dun. Um, (laughs) And Penelope's like, oh, yeah, I can help you with this. But they clearly like something in this area. Otherwise, they wouldn't have set up shop here. So why don't we just set up a beehive right back of the printing house and I can keep an eye. And now you can have like some bees of your very own. So they start writing as Penelope like cares for the hive and sends her updates and they start this epistolary friendship. And the next thing you know, they're kind of into each other. And it just takes them a while to get to the point where they realize, oh, you're into me too. Oh, oh no. And in the meantime, there's a whole bunch of events around other local wives and widows and the mass protests that are happening in support of Queen Caroline, who is on trial during the year. It's very, it's very fun because if you're writing about bees, you kind of have to write about communities. You can't like yeah. you can't have single bees, at least not honeybees. Like you, you definitely have like single mason bees or bumblebees and things, but honeybees are very much like a communal kind of creature. So you have to write a whole community. And with what's happening with different women at different social levels, that still affects other women. Absolutely. Much like what happens to one bee affects the community. Exactly. And, you know, the community has to continue, even if some of the community members are not great. And so yep. you're going to have, it, it's basically, you're going to have to have this fight over and over and over again. Like your job of maintaining this community is never really done. So when I initially emailed you, I was like, let's talk about bees. What were some of the things you learned about beekeeping and how did they influence the characters in the story? And, and, and do you just sit around and think about bees all the time now? I do. I mean, I kind of do yeah. that anyways. I've been in love with bees since I was a kid. Like I, get, I, would, I would read nonfiction books about bees and get that thrill like when you're reading good poetry. Because bees yeah. just feel like living little pieces of poetry to me. They're just, they're amazing and they're weird. And they're weirder than I actually was able to put in the book. Like, for instance, we didn't discover bee dances until much, much later. So I can't have people talk about bees using dance to communicate and going all into the beauty of that because we didn't know about it. And I'm like, oh, crap. And we didn't know about bee space, which is magical. Like, the reason modern hives work is because of bee space. There's a certain ratio. If you leave spaces between the frames of a hive, so a a big box hive with rectangular frames inside, The frames are spaced precisely so the bees do not build honeycomb between them. If you give bees too much space, they'll fill it with honeycomb. And if you give them too little space, they won't go in there at all. They won't actually, like, move around. If you give them, and it's really precise. I forget what the actual ratio is because I couldn't use it in the book. But it's something like one and three quarter inches. Wow. And that's the space that they will move around in but not fill with stuff. And so movable frames are spaced so that the, the honeycomb doesn't connect from frame to frame. So you can take one out and check it and brush the bees off and get the honey and then put it back and take the next one instead of having to like get all of the bees out of the whole hive and then take out all the comb and then put the bees back in and they're like, where's all the stuff we build? What's going on? Right. Right. I have a bunch of neighbors that have uh, 
pretty healthy hives in different places. And it's very cool to watch them do exactly that, to check the check the combs and check what's going on inside. Yeah, it's really something. My great-grandfather had uh, Langstroth hives, the same kind of box hives uh, when I was growing up. And oh, was, that's cool. Yeah. No, it was great. They had three box hives out by the little plot of, uh, well, it was like a miniature farm, really. There was corn and vegetables and raspberries and an orchard and I mean, obviously now I recognize, I'm like, oh yeah, those bees were his pollinators for all of these plants. Of course. And and at the time, at the, as a kid, I was just like, oh my gosh, they're buzzing so loud. I'm going to be <sighs> way over here, thanks. <laughs> now I'm thinking like, hmm, bee dances, country dances. What, what right. were the bee country dances like back in the day? Yeah. What kind of dances <laughs> did they do at the social gatherings? <laughs> Well, there were there were actually a lot of like big social events around bees. Some of them were earlier than the Regency, and I don't think I was able to fit any of them really in the book. So how did beekeeping influence your characters? Honestly, it's because the more you read about bees, the more the more you see how much people want bees to be like people in both good ways and bad ways. And so no you kidding. have characters who are trying to like fix how bees are bees, especially in the early 19th century. Which is before the, so the Langstroth hive was invented in 1852. And it became standard very quickly because of the way it used bee space and because it was so much better for the bees and for the beekeepers. It's like we still use them to this day with very little modification because they're just so low on low impact and so simple. Huh. But before that, you had this wave of like when science was kind of exploding and amateur science was was very popular and in this romantic era and this big post-enlightenment modern science explosion, you had a lot of people trying to design better beehives. So you had like because the traditional skep hive, your coiled straw hive dome, is very good for bees. It's great for bees. It's extremely hard to get honey out of without destroying the colony. Right. Yeah, so you either have to kill the bees or you have to take all of their comb away from them. And they're not really happy about that. That's and not a thing they're going to be in favor of, no. no. There's ways of modifying them, uh, one of which you do see in the book. So like putting, if you put a little wire mesh over a hole in the top of the skep to keep the queen out so that she doesn't lay any brood, then you can have, the, you can put a glass jar upside down on top and the bees will fill that with honey and comb. And then you can just, you pop off the jar and you put down a new jar and they'll start filling that as well. Right. A lot of these scientific hive designs didn't really catch on. Uh, My absolute favorite is called a leaf hive. And it was invented by an entomologist named Francois Huber, who was blind and he was Swiss. And his wife and his servant did a lot of observations and then he would, you know, kind of put together the data and make hypotheses and write write the resulting books. and he was, he was, he had a very troubled life, not just the blindness, but he was prone to bouts of depression as well. Mm-hmm. Um, his journals apparently haven't been published specifically because they get so dark and a lot of people didn't want to expose his personal struggles like that. Mm. Hopefully those will see the light of day someday because I think that would be some really interesting reading and a view back into coping with disability and mental health in the past that is still really incredibly rare to see in first person accounts. So um, that's a bit of a tangent. He invented (laughs) an observation hive that was specifically for use by scientists, not by like um, 
people who wanted to sell honey or people who just wanted to keep bees as pollinators. This was specifically for scientific observation. And it's called a leaf hive. And it's a bunch of boxes with glass sides and they hinge at the back. And so when they open, it's like the pages of a book opening, but it's a book full of bees. Whoa. So yeah, you have these like individual like rectangles that are full of bees and you can open them up. And then when you close them, the bees can get from one to the other. It's sort of like those ant farms that are exactly. two thin planes of glass with with sand and you watch them build tunnels. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And you can see you can see the activities and you can spot the queen and you can keep an eye on the brood and all of that. Oh. Um, but it looks so freaking cool. What about what about your character's relationship to her bees? Because that's almost like a romance inside the book. It is. Yeah, like she, um, Penelope is intensely protective of not just her bees, but everybody else's bees. And that's essentially what she does. So she's she's got a comfortable living. So what she does for an occupation is she helps out the local cottagers because bees are a great little like side hustle for a farming family because mm-hmm. they don't take a lot of maintenance and you can have the kids do it. And they add, like, you can either keep the honey and eat it or you can sell the honey and the comb and the wax. So it's a nice little like miniature income stream, which farming families at the time were really all very much in need of with enclosures and the way that agriculture was changing. So Penelope kind of goes from house to house in the neighborhood, checking up on the bees and doing kind of the heavy maintenance stuff and making sure that everybody's hives are in good shape. And also, you know, making notes about the data and honey production and doing like kind of the science part of things. But she feels she feels as protective about the bees as she feels about her community. Like one of the ways we get to judge people in this book is what do they do to bees and how do they treat bees? And a lot of people are very, very awful to bees in this book. And you know, that's a metaphor for how good or bad they are to other people. So I'm very extremely pro-bee in life and in this book. (laughs) Now, you recently did an interview with the uh, Tea and Strumpets podcast that I listened to, and you talked a little bit about how moving your characters out of the upper classes meant that they had all kinds of stuff to do. They were really busy. Yes. They became people who had a lot of things to do. And you mentioned your your characters have side hustles and they're trying to figure out what to do with different problems in their businesses. Did your character to-do list ever get like too unwieldy? I mean, it must be really oh, fun to write characters who've got so much to do. There's one I'm thinking of is the secret novellas. Like so far, each book in the Feminine Pursuit series has kind of a, a novella that's happening concurrently about side characters. And so like like the first one, it's Peter Violet and Mr. Bhattacharjee. And um, the second one is, oh, I'm not going to tell you who the second one is. Um, I don't know if I'll ever get to write these, but there were so many people and there was so much going on. And there are things I haven't even gotten to explore yet. Like there's a secret book in here somewhere about the paper factory that everybody's using. You know, the way that paper was made at the time and the way that printing happened. There's this whole like, there's something happening at that paper factory, but I don't know what it is yet. (laughs) And I don't know when I'll get to actually deal with it, but there's just... There's so much stuff here. And I'm realizing one of the things I like about historical romance in general is the stuff. And it's the gowns and it's the horses and the grounds and the gardens and all and like ballrooms and food and all that wonderful stuff. But once you open it up to like historical jobs, you get to describe some of the best and weirdest things. And they're so fun. 
and they you get you get opportunities that you don't get if you're focusing on just social engagements. Um, I actually spent an hour at a local letterpress company getting a sense for like how does the ink smell? What does it feel like to pull an engraving off of a plate? You know, what does setting type feel like? Um, Some of which was stuff I'd done before and some of which was quite new. And so um, one of the things that this printer told me was once you get, once you get your whole thing set up, you know, your, your type is set or your plate is in place and your press is ready to go and you've inked everything properly. Once you start getting into that rhythm and your paper's all wet properly, once you start getting into that rhythm, it's actually, it's very calm. And so you and whoever you're working with, because it's generally, there's generally at least two people working on these presses, uh, the mm-hmm. big letterpress ones in particular, because it's just more efficient with two people. You have all of this time and all of this familiar repetitive motion that you're all very used to. And so that's when the conversations tend to happen. Yep. And I'm like, oh, well, that's amazing. So you get this very hands-on, very deliberate kind of action but once you're actually doing it it doesn't take that much concentration so you're free to talk or listen to things or like engage with other people and discuss things and I'm like well if that's not a setup for an author then I don't know what is (laughs) (laughs) especially because much like the conversations that happen when you're doing something with your hands like stitching or knitting or cooking or doing some sort of repetitive intricate motion that becomes uh, almost autopilot for your brain, that's when you start to engage different thought patterns that that make for very interesting conversations. They're my favorite types of conversations. Exactly. I mean, I think that's why I rewatch so many things so often, because I know how it's going to happen. So we can pause to talk about how it's happening or why it's happening. Yeah. Or maybe yeah, there's exactly to make the story have like, yeah. And that leads me to a question from one of my Patreon community members, Kate. She is, A, very excited about this interview, but B, wanted to ask me about the the careers and hobbies and callings that your heroines have, such as astronomy, embroidery, printing. What what were your favorite to research? And do you have any that you haven't yet added to your book collections yet? Oh, yes. Well, I have so many. This series actually started with the job before I knew anything else about the people. Um, oh, that's writing, interesting. You started oh, yeah. with the jobs. Well, because oh, I, cool. I was writing Ladies Guide, which was a bit of, it just, it felt like a self-indulgence. Um, I had finished one book, a Cupid Psyche retelling. I was sending it around to agents and editors and such. And I didn't know what to write next. And I'm like, look, I've been looking to read like a sparkly Avon style FF historical for forever. And I haven't found one that really seems to click. I'm going to have to write it. And I had this old idea about an older aristocrat and a young scholar and I switched the young scholar to a young lady scholar and I'm like well I the initial thought was she was going to be like like he was going to be a classicist like latin greek all that good stuff that I love and then it didn't quite work because women studying classics had a much harder like it was much harder to get educated and to break into that field because classics was an essentially traditional hidebound very defended masculine enclave kind of a thing Mm mm-hmm and I'm like, well, what would what would a scientifically minded young lady at the time be? Oh, astronomy, of course. Like Carolyn Herschel, Mary Mary Somerville, like uh, who was Ada Lovelace's tutor, actually, uh, was an astronomer and a mathematician. And I was just like, oh, well, that makes sense. Well, if it's astronomy, then what else? And it just kind of 
snowballed from there and I was writing it and I was loving it. And I was doing all of this research into the material culture of the time. So the scientific world, but also fabric history and the embroidery uh, of the time in researching all of these different techniques and all of these different topics, I came up with all of these other things I wanted to go exploring and learn more about and look into and talk about and put people in. Like I wanted to see people doing these. I wanted to to talk about what it means for somebody to do this kind of work or that kind of work. And then um, when Avon made the offer, they're like, oh, do you have a series blurb? And I'm like, I have three quarters of a book. Um, give me five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I did was for books two and three, I'm like, I have some notes for books two and three. And what I did was I gave people jobs that I hadn't had a chance to put into book one. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, book two is um, a printer engraver, because I, I have one of those, and that'll be fun. And I don't know, a beekeeper, because, you know, you start reading about the science, and you start getting into entomology, and the bees are just kind of right there, and it's really interesting. And I was like, yeah, printer and beekeeper, sure. And then book three is, I don't know, a uh, silk weaver and a piano tuner. Yeah, sure. Sure, yeah. Those all sound great. <laughs> And it's worked out surprisingly well, like really, really well. Um, I'm in the process of writing book three right now, and it's super fun. And it's also much less of a slow burn. Like I did the slow burn in Waspish Widows, like the slowest possible burn. Uh, book three, they're hate making out by chapter three. So <laughs> just so you know, it's very much moving away, um, moving away from the usual kind of setting of historical romance. And part of that is a risk. But part of that just feels so good. And I've always really loved getting to see more of the Regency world in things like Rose Lerner's Small Town Historicals, the lively St. Lemiston books. I yes. love books like Life. Oh my gosh, I love every single one of those. And her newest one is actually in the lively St. Lemiston world, but it's a gothic. It's an FF Jane Eyre retelling that's a lively St. Lemiston gothic. It's not, they don't stay in lively St. Lemiston, but yes. It's so good. I can't even tell you. I like I like kind of breaking out of the ballroom every now and again. I love ballrooms. I always will. But like I wrote six of them and I feel like I don't really have anything useful to say about ballrooms anymore. So now I'm going into like the forgotten areas of history or the, the parts of history that don't often make it into historical romance. Uh, I know Carrie Lofty did a romance a few years back called Starlight that's about a Duke astronomer and then a union organizer heroine. And that made a huge impression on me at the time because I hadn't seen anybody who really, who really did say, no, this heroine lives in a one room house with all her family members and she's organizing the union and it's real tough. It kind of breaks you out of this sense of, oh, women could do X and men could do Y. And I'm like, that really only works for a tiny percent of the population. Like, well, women weren't allowed to have jobs in the Regency. Oh my gosh. Yes. Women worked everywhere in the Regency. They just weren't the upper class women. One of the things that that comes up a lot in the research, if you Google like printers, 1820, you get a list of men. If you Google women printers, 1820, you get a whole separate list of women that people know quite a lot about. They just don't come up under the generalized printer term. You have to specify you're looking for women. It's endlessly frustrating, but also it just shows you that, yeah, of course, women were owning businesses and running businesses and working at jobs and earning money and taking care of their families because they had to, because eating, <laughs> people like to do that. I mean, I know I do. Yeah. 
Now, you mentioned you're working on book three and how much you're enjoying it. And Shana wanted to know what she can do to convince you to write an FF romance every year for the rest of your life. She's willing to sacrifice goats, burn an FG of an alpha hole, send offerings of chocolate. There's many options on the table here. Should you be accepting bribes and offerings? Well, that, I mean, that's very tempting. Um, <laughs> especially somehow. I don't know. That's very, I was, I was a classics major as an undergrad. So sacrificing a goat is very flattering. But, <laughs> but um, book three is my last contracted ff and i have um some other ideas coming later uh and i don't know what they are quite yet i mean i have i have a whole stable full of of ideas constantly and some of them are ff but i also really want to get back to writing heroes at some point because um i love heroes i want to write i want to write like that hapless lovelorn like a smart birdie wooster (laughs) i want to see that guy get a romance you know, I want to write queer MF because I love queer MF books. And so there's there's a ton of things that are going to happen. There's definitely FF in the future because honestly, writing FF is so much fun. Um, speaking of kind of breaking out of, uh, of older Regency romance habits, when I started writing two heroines, I'm like, oh my gosh, the chaperone problem goes right out the window. Nobody cares. We girls can just hang out together and nobody thinks anything of it. They can sleep in the same bed and people are like, well, I guess that's a little intense, but whatever, you know, like, <laughs> like this makes so many things so much simpler. And it, and it places the tension keeping them apart on very different yes, elements. exactly. Claudia wanted me to ask you, um, what queer media has been inspiring to you? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, FF romances in general and particularly FF romances and MF romances with bisexual characters have really gotten me where I am today. Uh, I came out as bisexual and started to realize I was bi because I started reading FF romance. I read Kathy Pegau's Rule Breaker, which is a sci-fi heist romance um, with a bisexual heroine. Uh, and it's amazing. It's so much fun. It's it's like a boss secretary thing, except the secretary is also a spy trying to get secrets from the boss's company. And so the power differentials are very complex. Ooh. It's super good. It was the first time I'd read like an FF romance and I thought, okay, well, this might be, as a straight gal, quote straight, uh, this might be a little uncomfortable for me. And it wasn't. It really felt like like looking into a mirror at times and it felt like coming home a little bit. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to think about this. And then I started to notice how many other bisexual characters I'd was seeing in media. Rosa Diaz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and... Um, oh, what's her boss on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Just suddenly it felt like bisexual characters were really, you know, well, coming out and having a moment. Um, I watched a lot of Steven Universe, which is incredibly queer and just beautiful. And there were all of these story possibilities and there were all of these possibilities for existing that hadn't seemed possible even two, three years ago. It's kind of been a very sudden but very comprehensible there's a there's a bit in Ladies Guide that I that I put in that is very much kind of how I feel about it where it's not like you're you're opening up this whole new chapter. It's like you're looking back at a letter you've been writing about your life and you're realizing there's lines written crosswise. And they've been there the whole time, you just didn't know to turn the page to see them. And so it's not so much an oh, I guess I'm this going forward. It's this has been here all along and I just wasn't able to see it for various reasons. Internalized biophobia is a hell of a thing, turns out. 
FF romances and queer women's writing and queer women's media in general has been really, really instrumental in all of that for me. Melinda Lowe's romances, uh, her YA fairy tales, like her Ash, which is a YA FF Cinderella. Gorgeous. Absolutely stunning. And a lot of these are also very femme friendly. When I first started reading FF romance, I read every FF romance I could find. And a lot of them just felt really hostile. And partly that's because um, I am a queer woman who is married to a man and very happily married to a man. And so there's this whole like, I don't know if you're familiar with the term toaster oven romance. <laughs> no, that's a new one for yeah, me. Um, is this like you, you, you bring somebody into the fold and you get a toaster oven? Literally, yes. That is. Oh, for heaven's sake. And that's the joke that was made on Ellen way back when, when Ellen came out. Um, yes. And it became a trope. And oh my. people will tag it. And so I guess technically, Lady's Guide is a toaster oven romance because Catherine didn't know she was bisexual until she fell in love with Lucy. But uh, so when did you when do you get your toaster oven? Is it a good maybe maybe yeah, like, if, if we need to update this trope and you're the writer, maybe you could get an air fryer. <laughs> that would be nice. I like air fryers. Yeah, right. That'd be I mean, everyone has an instant pot. So, you know, air fryer romances. Yeah. When somebody realizes they're bi and doesn't have to pick a side. (laughs) (laughs) That seems like an ideal appliance pairing. And so it's been it's been a bit tense. I'm not going to lie, especially because uh, the Feminine Pursuit series, these books get tagged as lesbic a lot, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with lesbic. But I'm like, these ladies are bi or pan like. They always tag them with the lesbian side and they never tag them with the bisexual side. And I'm like, man, that's just, it stings a little sometimes. I can understand that. I know that for a lot of the reviewers on my team, they talk a lot about bi erasure in a lot of the published lesbian romances and how painful it is. It is. It's like getting punched in the face. Almost as if if you don't pick one thing, your existence is invalid. Yeah, you're supposed to balance on the head of this pin and people like people are like, oh, but you, you should be on one side of the pin or the other side of the pin, but you're standing in the middle of the pin. What's wrong with you? How can you stay there? You can't stay there. That's not sustainable. Um, a lot of it comes from that classic Dan Savage. Well, bi is just what you say before you actually come out as gay kind of idea. Mm, um, ouch. So toxic. So toxic. People are bisexual, Dan. They just are. But yeah, so this idea that all bisexuality is therefore kind of a transitional phase, as opposed to like some of it being authentic and some of it being somebody's very necessary need to kind of take take things slow in a world that's hostile to the idea of queerness in general. It must be very upsetting then to see the erasure of your own work and how it's shelved or tagged, even though at the same time, it's increasing representation in an area that does not have a lot of representation. Yes. Very frustrating. Especially, especially in the historicals. It's like, you know, we get we get FF historicals, um, but I don't know how many of them are like, how many of the ones tagged lesbian are actually pansexual women or bisexual women or some other flavor of queer as happens. I know Kat Sebastian's, what is it, A Delicate Deception? Her has two bisexual, a bisexual hero and a bisexual heroine. And then uh, one of the secondary characters is asexual. And it was marvelous. I was like, hooray, look at this. We're getting whole spectrums of people. And I love that. I love seeing whole communities where not everybody is all one thing. Maybe this is because I came from mainstream romance and I came specifically 
um, from reading a lot of queer sci-fi and fantasy where trans writers are more prominent than they are in romance. Like there's a lot of trans speculative fiction authors out there and they're doing incredible work and they're winning awards. And it's, it's really kind of shocking that we don't have something like that in romance. I mean, uh, there's been some discussion lately on Twitter about how romance is still very much tracked in the gender binary. Like, Oh yes. Yeah. And it really, it, it really goes out of its way to be hostile. A lot of it goes out of its way to be hostile to trans readers and writers. And so it's, it always strikes me as so weird that, that we're kind of factioning off queer spaces. And I'm like, well, what about like, you know, everyone else out here? We, we, we want to be part of this. We want to, we want to join this community. We want to have a community together, but you don't even really seem to see so many of us. I tend to think that if somebody's being really hostile to trans, and this is this is true in real life and in fiction, if somebody's being really hostile to trans people, which people will be at the drop of a hat, like it does not take very long, then it tends to it tends to signal me that they're not necessarily going to be safe for me either. I've used this about RWA in the past, this particular metaphor, but it's like, you know, when you go out on a date and somebody's rude to the wait staff. Yeah, it's a big like, signal. Yeah, this is what they'll do to somebody they have power over. Which which relates back to what we were saying earlier about bees. How you treat a community that is different from your community says a lot about you. And bees tend to specifically come in for a lot of people think bees are very much the ideal model of society. So they're like, oh, everybody has a job and you never step out of your place. And that's what makes a good society. Ugh. Or you say like, everybody has a job and they work together for the good of the community, and that's what makes a good society. And it's like, this is the same bees we're talking about. Yes, but it depends. How capitalist is your metaphor? Well, exactly. <laughs> are your tenants, are they indentured servants? Are they slaves? Are they like... Resources? You know, yes. Are bees Democrats or are bees monarchists? Depends on who you ask. In 1867, I looked this fact up the other day. In 1867, George Cruikshank, caricaturist, published the British Beehive, which was a reworked engraving that he first, he first did it in like 1840, but the, the reworking and the engraving came in 1867. And the British Beehive was, it's this beautiful detailed illustration of all the different jobs in British society. And they're ranked according to hierarchy. And at the very top, of course, is the king and queen. And then there's like the aristocracy underneath. And then there's all the various trades and their representatives. And it's like, look, this machine is working. We don't need to reform nothing. Oh, boy. And in the same year, uh, Karl Marx's first volume of Capital came out. And he talks about bees in that book. He says, so bees do work, but bees don't do labor. Um, because a bee will make a thing. A bee will build a honeycomb. But when a man makes a thing, he's already planned it out in his head. There's an aspect of this labor that the bee is not doing. Humans, better than bees, we have this reflection, and that's part of what adds value to labor, and that's part of what the worker's value is. And this may be a deeply reductionist reading of Marx, because honestly, it's been a while. The fact that those two entirely opposed ideas of bees, and specifically as, as political metaphor, because you can't really talk about bees without getting metaphorical for more than like five seconds. Mm -hmm. Like it just, it just happens. Um, <laughs> at least it happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> and from what I under, from what I've read, it happens to a lot of other people too. We see ourselves in bees 
more than in other animals. And it's partly because we've domesticated them and we're familiar with them. And it's partly because they live in groups like people do. What are you reading that you want to tell people about? Well, right now, since I turned in the column, um, I've got Olivia Day, an arc of Olivia Dade's spoiler alert queued up, ready Ooh. to start, because I've heard such good things. And I mean, her stuff's always amazing. And one of the great things about being named Olivia is that occasionally people email me or tag me when they mean to tag Olivia Dade, uh, which is always fun, especially when it means they've just sent you a widget for her new upcoming book and you really wanted this arc, but they emailed <laughs> the wrong Olivia and you're like, do I tell them or do I just click send this to me and then tell them? <laughs> and I was good. I went, uh, excuse me, I think you've emailed the wrong Olivia, but can I have one? But it's supposed to be great. And I read, um, actually blurbed Alexis Hall's Boyfriend material, which came out earlier this summer. And that book made me so happy. It made me so happy. It was funny, like, like roll on the floor funny. And just, oh, there's a, there's a side character. And his name is Alex Twaddle of the Yes. yes. I, I just want to protect him. I just want to like wrap him up and give him tea and make sure nothing bad ever happens to him and his possible fiance, Muffy. <laughs> like, <laughs> the fact that they don't know if they're engaged, it, I just can't get over it. I want to just watch them solving mysteries for like four books. And it was it was great because, you know, you thought you had him pegged like, oh, yes, the uber controlled character and the hot mess character. And we know how this trope goes. And then, of course, it turns out the hot mess is starting to figure things out. And the uber controlled guy has a lot of mess that he's been hiding. And that switch is so satisfying. And then the one I'm reading right now isn't a romance, but I'm catching up on the new Murderbot novel. And oh, I, I love her. it so much. It's so good. <laughs> Oh, the, the whole anger and resentment and wish to just dive into media. And I'm like, this has never been more relatable. Yep. <laughs> this is what we all need. I love Murderbot, the whole series. I think I read it twice in a row. I was so happy to just be in that character's head. Like, yep, I fully understand. People are annoying. Let's go watch TV. <laughs> it's It's so wonderful. It's such a great take on that whole like ah oh, the humanity of robots and i'm like how can we do this in the least pretentious way possible i know they're just like people they want to fuck off and do nothing sounds great i'm a i'm a big fan of sarcastic artificial intelligence characters <laughs> i didn't realize that that was a thing i have that's a thing i have i'm really enjoying in this novel because we see murderbot with like a younger human for the first time yes and it's clearly like struggling and <laughs> oh and art Oh, I love art. When you're done with the novel, email me because I have to share with you a comment that someone made about some of the relationships in that book. And I'm dying oh, yeah. to hear your perspective. I would like that. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. I really, really appreciate your time. Oh, no, it's always such a pleasure. I love these. I love these podcasts. I read all the transcripts. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm so glad. So that's my, like, I love podcasts, but I can't focus on just auditory. No, I get it. I yeah, get it. So, Part of why I have a transcript. Exactly. It's so nice. And then I, I don't feel like I'm missing out on the conversation. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to Olivia Waite for hanging out with me. I will have links to where you can find her on her website, Twitter, Instagram, and where you can join her email list as well. 
I will also have links to the articles we talked about, the podcast on tea and strumpets, where she was a guest, and all of the books. Speaking of books, I tried something new in this episode, and I'm curious if it worked. I tried to make it so that when we were talking about a specific book, that book would appear on the screen of the app that you use to play the podcast. Now, I think I formatted it correctly, so it should have worked across all formats, but I'm curious if you saw book covers. Did you see them? Did they work? Did it work? Let me know. You can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com and be like, I saw nothing. What, what, what are you talking about? Or you can be like, hey, it worked. That was cool. Or it could make no difference. I have no idea. But either way, I love hearing from you. So if you notice the book covers and you want to tell me about it, please let me know because I hope it worked. Thank you again to our Patreon community for making each episode more awesome. If you would like to have a look and support the show, go to patreon.com slash smartbitches. Every pledge is deeply, deeply appreciated. This episode was brought to you by Candlewick Press, publisher of The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea, a new YA fantasy novel by Maggie Takuda Hall. This book has gender-fluid pirates, witchcraft, Japanese cultural themes, swashbuckling, throat-stabbing, and a whole lot of adventure. And I will link to the episode where Maggie was guest on the show talking at length about the book. I've done a couple of events with her, and if you haven't checked this book out, you will really, really enjoy it. The Mermaid, the Witch, and the Sea by Maggie Takuda Hall is published by Candlewick Press and is available now wherever books are sold. Okay, it's bad joke time. You've waited long enough. It's time. Are you ready? This is really horrible. This is, this is a very controversial joke. Very controversial. Are you ready? Why don't vegans and vegetarians ever fight? Why don't vegans and vegetarians ever fight? Because they never want to have beef. <laughs> I can sort of hear you in the back of my mind going, uh, <laughs> beef. <laughs> if you want to send me bad jokes, you know I love to have them. You can email them to me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. It is enormously exciting when I open that inbox and it's like, Sarah, I have a joke for you. Yes! So please, if you have terrible jokes, share them with me. It completely makes my day, I swear. On behalf of Olivia Waite, my dog who is begging for treats, and the cat who is trying not to torment him, and everyone else here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend. We will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts like The Big Gay Fiction Show at frolic.media slash podcasts. 